0: Welcome back, our fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics podcast. Before we plunge into our episode, I want to thank you again for your extreme patience in waiting for its release. As we mentioned earlier, I'm still running for a higher office, that is the Michigan Court of Appeals, and since I draft the script and narrate a portion of the episodes, my campaign has really bogged down our podcast. Please accept my deep apology. Today, we return to our review of Article 1 of the Constitution. When I say we, I'm joined by Mike Girard and bombastic Brent Bassett, and spectacular Sheila Guerin and enchanting Aaron Marcino. Thank you for all your support. Mike Girard will get us started.
1: As we have previously discussed, the first Article of the Constitution establishes the Congress. Section 1 creates Congress, giving it all federal legislative authority. Congress is divided into chambers, the House of Representatives, and the Senate. Section 2 provides that the House of Representatives is elected by the people of each state and establishes a two-year term of office, with no term limits or other restrictions. Members of the House of Representatives must be 25 years old, a citizen of the United States for more than seven years, and must be a citizen of the state from which he or she is elected. Each state is apportioned a number of representatives in proportion to the overall population of the country, with the exception that each state must have at least one representative, and the exact number of representatives for each state is determined via a census, which occurs every 10 years. We also discussed the infamous three-fifths clause, which provided that the enslaved were only considered three-fifths of a free person for purposes of apportioning the number of representatives each state was entitled in the House of Representatives. Before we move to the next provision, there are a couple of hidden gems we didn't explore. The third paragraph of Article 1, Section 2, which includes the census and the three-fifths clause, begins as follows.
0: Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within this union, according to their respective numbers.
1: No doubt you heard Judge Warren's emphasis on direct taxes. That means that any taxes levied across the country had to be done in direct proportion to population as determined by the census. Some people think that Congress could not impose direct taxes on the people until the passage of the 16th Amendment, which gave Congress the constitutional authority to impose an income tax without regard to apportionment. However, that is a common misunderstanding. The federal government was empowered to levy taxes on the people directly, so long as they were imposed in the same manner as representatives were chosen. Practically speaking, this was indeed difficult. The very learned and influential United States Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story wrote that as of 1840, only three such taxes had been implemented, with large gaps of time between them. The language of the Constitution is that representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states, according to the respective numbers, and, at the first view, it would not seem to involve the slightest difficulty— A moment's reflection will dissipate the illusion and teach us that there is a difficulty intrinsic in the very nature of the subject. In regard to direct taxes, the natural course would be to assume a particular sum to be raised, as three million of dollars, and to apportion it among the states according to their relative numbers.' But, even here, there will always be a very small fractional amount incapable of exact distribution, since the numbers in each state will never exactly coincide with any common divisor, or give an exact aliquot part, that is, forming an exact divisor for each state without any remainder. But... As the amount may be carried through a long series of descending money fractions, it may be ultimately reduced to the smallest fraction of any existing or even imaginary coin. In other words, making taxes line up with the math demanded by the Constitution was very, very difficult, which may be one of the reasons only three such taxes were passed in the first fifty years of the Republic. This provision was developed in connection with the debate and compromise over the three fifths clause. As we previously discussed, the slaveholding southern states generally wanted to count all their enslaved persons for purposes of representation, and the northern states, which had few slaves, did not want the enslaved to count at all. When the idea of counting three-fifths of all slaves for purposes of representation was proposed and gaining traction, but not yet agreed to, Pennsylvania delegate Governor Morris moved on July 12, 1787, to use the same proportion for taxes, which eventually was refined to direct taxes. In other words, the enslaved would count as three-fifths for purposes of taxation, which means that the taxes would be lessened on the slaveholding states in proportion to the lessening of their representation in Congress. Morris had offered it to bridge the gulf between the two sides, and it worked. Madison confirmed that it mollified the positions of both sides. Now, the other hidden gem relates to the maximum number of representatives in Congress. Article 1,
0: Section 2 provides, The number of representatives shall not exceed one for every 30,000, but each state shall have at least one representative. In other words, each representative in the House of Representatives
1: had to represent at least 30,000 people. When the Constitution was drafted in 1787, the population of the United States was about 4 million, of which about 700,000 were enslaved. This constitutional provision was purposefully designed to limit the number of members of the House of Representatives in Congress. Although the nation only began with about 4 million people, the Founders understood that the young country was rapidly growing. Actually, that's an understatement. The population was skyrocketing based on several factors. First, the national birth rate was tremendous. The conditions were ideal for raising large families. Second, immigration continued at a rapid pace. Third, the cruel slave trade continued to import the enslaved at a sickening pace. Fourth, the United States had its eyes on additional territories across the continent. Florida, Louisiana, and the lands over the Appalachian Mountains, even Canada, all beckoned. Indeed, in just 13 years after the Constitutional Convention, that is in 1800, the population was well over 5 million. In 1820, it was more than 9.5 million. The population had more than doubled in about 30 years. On the other hand, each state needed to have at least one representative, even if it was extraordinarily small in population. The founders never considered weighting the votes of the congressmen, so each representative had the same amount of power as any other, and the founders did not believe that a state should be left without at least one dedicated congressman. A justice Story explained the competing and complementary reasoning in play. There remained two important points to be settled in regard to representation. First, that each state should have at least one representative, for otherwise it might be excluded from any share of the legislative power in one branch, and secondly, that there should be some limitation on the number of representatives, for otherwise Congress might increase the House to an unreasonable size.' If Congress were left free to apportion the representatives according to any basis of numbers they might select, half the states in the Union might be deprived of representatives if the whole number of their inhabitants fell below that basis. On the other hand, if the number selected for the basis were small, the House might become too unwieldy for business.' There is, therefore, great wisdom in restricting the representation, so that there shall not be more than one representative for every thirty thousand inhabitants in a state, and on the other hand, by a positive provision, securing to each state a constitutional representative in the House by at least one representative, however small its own population may be. However— not everyone found this compromise to be satisfactory. James Madison, in Federalist Paper Number 55, fairly captured the critiques by summarizing them as follows.
2: The charges exhibited against it are, first, that so small a number of representatives will be an unsafe depository of the public interests, second, that they will not possess a proper knowledge of the local circumstances of their numerous constituents. Third, that they will be taken from the class of citizens which will sympathize least with the feelings of the mass of the people, and be most likely to aim at permanent elevation of the few on the depression of the many. Fourth, that defective as the number will be in the first instance, it will be more and more disproportionate by the increase of the people and the obstacles which will prevent a correspondent increase of the representatives.
1: The first objection, that the Congress would begin too small, was elaborated at great length by Melancton Smith, a delegate to the New York Ratifying Convention. He was alarmed at the small number of members in the House of Representatives and the Senate, Smith was an early revolutionary who served in New York's first Revolutionary Provincial Congress in 1776. He organized and led the first company of Minutemen in Dutchess County and in December 1776 became a major in command of New York Ranger Companies. He later served as High Sheriff, Commissary Agent of the Army, and was appointed by George Washington as Commissioner to settle Land Disputes. He was also an influential lawyer and merchant. He eventually agreed to support the Constitution when the Federalists promised to add a Bill of Rights. But before he changed his mind, he laid out a striking challenge in connection with the key issue of how many representatives should be chosen.
3: A representative body composed principally of respectable yeomanry, that is, small independent farmers, is the best possible security to liberty. When the interest of this part of the community is pursued, the public good is pursued, because the body of every nation consists of this class, and because the interest of both the rich and poor are involved in that part of the middling class. No burden can be laid on the poor, but what will sensibly affect the middling class? Any law rendering property insecure would be injurious to them. When, therefore, this class of society pursue their own interest, they promote that of the public, for it is involved in it. In so small a number of representatives, there is great danger from corruption and combination. A great politician has said that every man has his price. I hope that is not true in all its extent, but I ask the gentleman to inform what government there is in which it has not been practiced notwithstanding all that has been said of the defects of the constitution of the ancient confederacies of the Grecian republics, their destruction is to be imputed more to this cause than to any imperfection in their forms of government. This was the deadly poison that affected their dissolution. This is an extensive country, increasing in population and growing in consequence. Very many lucrative offices will be in the grant of the government, which will be the object of avarice and ambition. How easy will it be to gain over a sufficient number in the bestowment of these offices to promote the views and purpose of those who grant them? Foreign corruption is also to be guarded against. A system of corruption is known to the system of government in Europe. It is practiced without blushing. And we may lay it to our account. It will be attempted amongst us. The most effectual as well as natural security against this is a strong democratic branch in the legislature frequently chosen, including in it a number of the substantial, sensible yeomanry of the country. Does the House of Representatives answer this description. I confess, to me, they hardly were the complexion of a democratic branch. They appear the mere shadow of representation. The whole number in both amounts to 91. Of these 46 make a quorum, and 24 of these being secured may carry any point. Can the liberties of three millions of people be securely trusted in the hands of 24 men? Is it prudent to commit to so small a number the decision of the great questions which will come before them? Reason revolts at the idea.
1: Smith was responding to Alexander Hamilton's argument that over time, the Congress would slowly expand with the population, which would hedge against the corruption and cabals that Smith was concerned about. And Smith turned the argument against Hamilton.
3: The Honorable Gentleman from New York, Alexander Hamilton, has said that 65 members in the House of Representatives are sufficient for the present situation of the country, and taking it for granted that they will increase as one for 30,000, in 25 years they will amount to 200. It is omitted by this observation that the number fixed in the Constitution is not sufficient without it being augmented. It is not declared that an increase shall be made, but it is left to the discretion of the legislature by the gentleman's own concession. Therefore, the Constitution is imperfect.
1: In other words, Smith argued, Hamilton all but conceded that the initial number of representatives would be too small. But be not concerned about that, argued Hamilton, because the spirit of the people would prevent tyranny or corruption of the people's elected representatives. But again, Smith turned the
3: argument. We certainly ought to fix in the Constitution those things which are essential to liberty. If anything falls under this description, it is the number in the legislature to say as this gentleman does that our security is to depend upon the spirit of the people who will be watchful of their liberties and not suffer them to be fringed is absurd it would equally prove that we might adopt any form of government i believe were we to create a despot he would not immediately dare to act the tyrant but it would not be long before he would destroy the spirit of the people or the people would destroy him if our people have a high shunch of liberty the government will be congenial to the spirit, calculated to cherish the love of liberty, while yet it had sufficient force to restrain licentiousness. Government operates upon the spirit of the people, as well as the spirit of the people operates upon it, and if they are not conformable to each other, the one or the other will prevail. In less than 25 years, the government will receive its tone. What the spirit of the country may be at the end of that period, it is impossible to foretell. Our duty is to frame a government friendly to liberty and the rights of mankind, which will tend to cherish and cultivate a love of liberty among our citizens. If this government becomes oppressive, it will be by degrees. It will aim all of its disseminating sentiments of government opposite to republicanism and proceed from step to step in depriving the people of a share in the government.
1: Smith was cutting to the chase. The whole point of the Constitution was to protect the people from an unjust, corrupt, and tyrannical federal government. If we could just rely upon the people to safeguard our liberties, we might as well have a king, military junta, or theocracy. Hamilton was arguing that the size of Congress would be sufficient in 25 years, but that just meant the country would be taking a great gamble that the Congress would be just, fair, and protective of liberty for a quarter of a century. Although these attacks were strong, Madison was not going to back down. In the Federalist Papers, he began to address these critiques with a bit of humility, by admitting that the number of representatives was indeed a vexing question. Each state had its own number of representatives in their legislatures, and they by no means represented the same number of citizens across the states. The trick, he explained, was to find the correct balance between appropriately ensuring that the sentiments of the people were accurately reflected in the legislature while still enabling its size to be able to be practically functional.
2: The truth is that, in all cases, a certain number at least seems to be necessary to secure the benefits of free consultation and discussion and to guard against too easy a combination for improper purposes, as, on the other hand, the number ought at most to be kept with a certain limit, in order to avoid the confusion and intemperance of a multitude. In all very numerous assemblies of whatever characters composed, passion never fails to rest the scepter from reason. Had every Athenian citizen even a Socrates, every Athenian assembly would still have been a mob.
1: Madison at times could be quite poetic. He reflected that the first house of representatives would have 65 members. With the growth of population, he expected that that number would quickly grow to 100, and then eventually to 400. He noted that this answered the concerns about the Congress being too small for the long term and then moved to address whether it was too small in the short term.
2: The true question to be decided is whether the smallness of the number, as a temporary regulation, be dangerous to the public liberty. Whether sixty-five members for a few years and a hundred or two hundred for a few more be a safe depositary for a limited and well-guarded power of legislating for the United States, I must own that I could not give a negative answer to this question without first obliterating every impression which I have received with regard to the present genius of the people of America the spirit which actuates the state legislatures and the principles which are incorporated with the political character of every class of citizens. I am unable to conceive that the people of America, in their present temper or under any circumstances which can speedily happen, will choose, and every second year Repeat the choice of sixty-five or a hundred men who would be disposed to form and pursue a scheme of tyranny or treachery. I am unable to conceive that the state legislatures, which must feel so many motives to watch and which possess so many means of counteracting the Federalist legislature, would fail either to detect or to defeat a conspiracy of the latter against the liberties of their own common constituents. I am equally unable to conceive that there are this time or can be in any short time in the United States any sixty-five or a hundred men capable of recommending themselves to the choice of the people at large, who would either desire or dare, within the short space of two years, to betray the solemn trust committed to them.
1: In essence, Madison trusted the people to elect men of character to the Congress, and was confident that the states and the people would be able to check any mischief or tyrannical leanings in the House of Representatives, so long as its membership was a couple hundred or less. In Federalist Paper No. 56, he joined the second argument that small Congress would not have enough information to properly represent the people. He explained that because the federal government's authority was mostly limited to commerce, taxation, and the militia, that experience revealed that the representatives would have more than sufficient enough knowledge to properly represent their constituents in Congress. That begs the question of what he would think of today in light of the massive expansion of the federal government in the modern age, but that's a topic for another time. In Federalist Paper No. 57, Madison countered the third objection, which was that members of the House would have no sympathy with the constituents and would oppress them. Madison called this argument the most extraordinary objection, based on the argument that the Constitution was creating an oligarchy, which fundamentally misunderstood the nature of the republican form of government the Constitution had established. He explained,
2: The aim of every political constitution is or ought to be, first, to obtain for rulers men who possess most wisdom to discern, and most virtue to pursue, the common good of society, and in the next place, to take the most effectual precautions for keeping them virtuous whilst they continue to hold their public trust. The elective mode of obtaining rulers is the characteristic policy of Republican government, who are to be the electors of the federal representatives, not the rich more than the poor, not the learned, more than the ignorant, not the haughty heirs of distinguished names, more than the humble sons of obscure and unpropitious fortune. The electors are to the great body of the people of the United States. They are to be the same who exercise the right in every state of electing the corresponding branch of the legislature of the state.
1: Not only were the voters the great mass of the people, but the House of Representatives would be full of the common people.
2: Who are to be the objects of popular choice, every citizen, whose merit may recommend him to the esteem and confidence of his country. No qualification of wealth, of birth, of religious faith, or of civil profession, is permitted to fetter the judgment or disappoint the inclination of the people.
1: In other words, the people at large would be able to elect whoever they thought most worthy to hold a seat in the House of Representatives. This would ensure men of high learning, quality, and character. Madison also noted that there would be frequent elections, which of course would be used to restrain the House of Representatives from going against the will of the people. He added another precaution against tyranny was that congressmen and their families and friends would all be subject to the laws of Congress. There were to be no castes, nobility, or privileged classes in America.
2: I will add, as a circumstance in the situation of the House of Representatives, Restraining them from oppressive measures, that they can make no law which will not have its full operation on themselves and their friends, as well as on the great mass of the society. This has always been deemed one of the strongest bonds by which human policy can connect the rulers and the people together. It creates between them that communion of interests and sympathy of sentiments of which few governments have furnished examples, but without which every government degenerates into tyranny. If it be asked, what is to restrain the House of Representatives from making legal discriminations in favor of themselves and a particular class of the society, I answer the genius of the whole system, the nature of just and constitutional laws, and, above all, the vigilant and manly spirit which actuates the people of America, a spirit which nourishes freedom and in return is nourished by it. If this spirit shall ever be so debased as to tolerate a law, Not obligatory on the legislature as well as on the people, the people will be prepared to tolerate anything but liberty.
1: What Madison is saying here is that we need not be concerned about the size of the House of Representatives leading to corruption through privilege or largesse, because the people would not tolerate Congress exempting itself from laws or by passing special laws that only benefited. Congressman, these arguments together answered the first three major objections he earlier outlined. With regard to the fourth objection, that once Congress had more than a couple hundred members, it could become despotic, Madison admitted that it was the strongest and most credible argument. In Federalist Paper No. 55, again expressing humility, he admitted he could not provide assurances that the country would be safe in the long term as the House of Representatives grew beyond a couple hundred members.
2: What change of circumstances time and fuller population of our country may produce requires a prophetic spirit to declare, which makes No part of my pretensions.
1: In Federalist paper number fifty eight, Madison returned to this most important objection. He argued that the danger was overblown for the foreseeable future, but then was again forced to concede that it could present serious dangers to liberty in the long term. He reflected that in ancient democracies, that even though the entire people, or at least a large portion of it, gathered in legislative assemblies, that in reality one or a handful of leaders directed the assembly. They had ruled with as complete sway as if a scepter had been placed in his single hand. And as such, large legislative assemblies could lead to tyranny."
2: The more multitudinous a representative assembly may be rendered, the more it will partake of the infirmities incident to collective meetings of the people. Ignorance will be the dupe of cunning and passion, the slave of sophistry and declamation. The people can never err more than in supposing that by multiplying their representatives Beyond a certain limit, they strengthen the barrier against the government of a few. Experience will forever admonish them that, on the contrary, after securing a sufficient number for purposes of safety, of local information, and of diffusive sympathy with the whole society, They will counteract their own views by addition to their representatives. The countenance of the government may become more democratic, but the soul that animates it will be more oligarchic. The machine will be enlarged, but the fewer and often the more secret Will be the springs by which its motions are directed.
1: And so Madison is saying at some point, the number of representatives becomes so large that a single leader, or maybe a small cabal, controls the chamber. From the outside, it looks more democratic because of the large number of representatives, but from the inside, there is an all powerful leader throttling representative government. But Madison made this observation not as an objection to ratifying the Constitution, but as a clarion call, warning future generations. For the foreseeable future, Madison argued, there was no danger of tyranny from the House of Representatives. It would take generations before the House of Representatives could transform into a tool of oligarchs and tyrants. Writing several decades later, Justice Story also noted, that for some, the 30,000-person minimum seemed to strike at representative government because it seemed that each representative was representing too many people, but with the growth of the population, the opposite concern was then rising. It may be curious to remark that it was originally thought a great objection to the Constitution that the restriction of representatives to one for every thirty thousand would give too small a house to be a safe depository of power and that now the fear is that a restriction to double that number will hardly in the future restrain the size of the house within sufficiently moderate limits for the purpose of an efficient and enlightened legislation. So much has the growth of the country under the auspices of the national constitution outstripped the most sanguine expectations of its friends. So Story is saying... That with each representative representing even 60,000, the House would be too large to manage. To hear reasoned debate, to engage in political compromise, and to appropriately represent the wishes of the people, all resulting in poor statecraft and legislative outcomes, corruption and a dominating cabal was quite possible.
2: What would the founders think now that each representative represents, on average, 761,000 people?
1: Or how about a million, which I think is absolutely ridiculous, and it sounds like great fodder for a future episode, don't you think,
0: bombastic Brent Bassett? It sure does, but we need to move on or we'll never finish the Constitution. The next clause of Article 1, Section 2, which is the penultimate clause of the section, provides... When vacancies happen in the representation from any state, the executive authority thereof shall issue writs of election to fill such vacancies. In other words, when there is a vacancy in the House of Representatives, the governor of each state has a duty to call an election to fill the vacancy. This provision was basically the language proposed by the Committee of Detail, which issued a report on August 6, 1787. The need for this provision was self-evident. Of course, on occasion, congressmen leave office before they complete their terms. They may die, resign, win election to another office, or be appointed to another position. The question naturally arises, how is a replacement chosen? Justice Story explained. It is obvious that such a
1: power ought to reside in some public functionary. The only question is, in whom it can, with most safety and convenience, be lodged. If vested in the general government, or in any part of it, it was thought that there might not be as strong motives for an immediate exercise of the power, or as thorough a knowledge of the local circumstances, to guide the exercise of it wisely, as if vested in the state government. It is therefore left to the latter, and to that branch of it the state Executive, which is best fitted to exercise it with promptitude
0: and discretion. In other words, the founders didn't trust the federal government to act with the speed and wisdom necessary to fill the spot. Hmm, that's hard to believe. And of the three branches of the state government, the governor was the best suited to act quickly as well. So this provision provides that the governor of the representative state has the authority to call for a new election. Actually, the verbiage is even stronger than that. The provision specifically provides that the governor shall issue writs of election, and federal courts have consistently ruled that a governor cannot decline to call for such an election unless there is truly a tiny time period before the seat is going to be filled anyway. The last clause of Article 1, Section 2, also tracks the proposal of the August 6, 1787 report by the Committee of Detail, with the exception that it combines into one sentence What had been two sentences. This provision creates a leader for the House of Representatives, acknowledges other officers may be created, and thus the awesome power of impeachment in the House of Representatives. The House of Representatives shall choose their Speaker and other officers, and shall have the sole power of impeachment. The Speaker of the House was an office borrowed from the House of Commons, in which a member was selected to lead the proceedings of the House. However, in the House of Commons, the Speaker did not vote. James Wilson explained the historical practice in the House of Commons of choosing a Speaker who had no legislative authority. The first
1: mode of passing a bill through Parliament was by a petition to the King. This petition represented the grievance or inconvenience concerning which complaint was made and requested that it should be removed. When a petition was offered by the commons after they sat in a separate house, it was necessary to appoint some person to intimate their views and wishes to the king. This person, chosen by themselves and approved by the king, with whom they would not address by the mouth of the person disagreeable to him, was denominated
0: by their speaker. In other words, the speaker of the House of Commons was the house's representative to the king. Think of him as a liaison between the monarchy and the legislature or, perhaps more apt, the mouth of Sauron. This was no small task. Wilson reflected that it had to be performed in a dignified and respectful manner, and it was very arduous work. He then quoted Sergeant Sir Christopher Yelgervin, who belonged to the highest and most ancient degree at the English Bar, when he addressed the House of Commons after his appointment as speaker was confirmed by Queen Elizabeth.
1: "'Whence your unexpected choice of me "'to be your mouth or speaker should proceed, "'I am utterly ignorant. "'Neither from my person nor my nature "'doth this choice arise. "'For he that suppliers this place "'ought to be a man, big and comely, "'stately and well-spoken, "'his voice great, his carriage majestical, "'his nature haughty. "'But,' Contrarily, the stature of my body is small, myself not so well-spoken, my voice low, my carriage lawyer-like, and of the common fashion, my nature soft and bashful. If Demosthenes, the most captivating orator in ancient Athens, being so learned and so eloquent as he was, trembled to speak before Phocion, the Athenian general, statesman, and student of Plato at Athens— How much more shall I, being unlearned and unskilful, supply this place of dignity to speak before the unspeakable majesty and sacred personage of our dread and dear sovereign, the terror of whose countenance will appeal and abase even the stoutest heart?
0: Perhaps the speaker laid it on a bit thick, but you get the point that being Speaker was a vital responsibility in light of his role in mediating between the Monarch and the House of Commons. There were also Speakers of the House in local colonial assemblies who played the same role between the colonial legislatures and the royal governors. But the Constitution changed the role significantly. The Speaker was to lead the House of Representatives, for sure, but it also removed the requirement that he or she be approved by anyone other than the House of Representatives, Justice Story explained how revolutionary this little change really was. In Great Britain, the Speaker
1: is elected by the House of Commons, but he must be approved by the King, and similar power of approval belonged to some of the governors in the colonies before the Revolution. An independent and unlimited choice by the House of Representatives of all their officers is every way desirable. It secures on the part of their officers a more efficient responsibility and gives to the House a more complete authority over them. It avoids all the dangers and inconveniences which may arise from differences of opinion between the House and the Executive in periods of high party excitement. It relieves the executive from all the embarrassments of opposing the popular will and the House from all the irrations of not consulting the wishes of the cabinet.
0: The remainder of the clause vests the sole power of impeachment in the House of Representatives. Before we dive into what impeachment means, let's quickly review what is not in this provision. Sometimes people have the misunderstanding that if a federal official is impeached, he or she is automatically removed from office. Actually, the House of Representatives does not have the power to remove the president or other federal officials alone. It can only impeach them, and as we will learn when we study the Senate, the Senate can only remove a federal official on a vote of two-thirds of the Senate after an official has been impeached. They have to work together. Now, the convention nearly universally believed that there must be a way to remove federal officials outside of elections. But why? After all, they were creating a republic, and if the people were sovereign and elected officials were accountable to the people, why should anyone other than the people be able to remove federal officials, and why should there exist a way to remove them other than elections? Influential Founding Father George Mason explained the sentiment.
2: No point is of more importance than that the right of impeachment should be continued. Shall any man be above justice? Above all, shall that man be above it who can commit the most extensive injustice.
0: In other words, sometimes government officials act in illegal, unjust, and corrupt ways, requiring that they be removed as soon as possible, long before an election can take place. Justice Story similarly reflected the purpose of impeachment. The great
1: object of this power is to bring persons to justice, who are so elevated in rank or influence that there is danger that they might escape punishment before the ordinary tribunals, and the exercise of the power is usually confined to political or official offenses.
0: There needed to be means to remove someone for misconduct while in office. At the convention, Madison elaborated a bit on what kinds of actions justified impeachment in connection with the chief executive.
2: It is indispensable that some provision should be made for defending the community against the incapacity, negligence, or perfidy, that is, deliberate breach of faith, of the chief magistrate. The limitation of the period of his service was not a sufficient security. He might lose his capacity after his appointment. He might pervert his administration to a scheme of peculation, that is, embezzlement, or oppression. He might betray his trust to foreign powers. In the case of the executive magistracy, which was to be administered by a single man, Loss of capacity or corruption was more within the compass of probable events, and either of them might be fatal to the Republic.
0: The founders were too well acquainted with rulers who had engaged in corruption, committed crimes, violated the law, engaged in bribery, oppressed the people, and acted like tyrants. Also, there was the realistic danger that an officer would become ill or otherwise disabled from office. The founders knew that they had to have the ability to remove a single person or a group of men who believed that they were above the law. As Madison noted, the future of the Republic might depend on removing a corrupted, tyrannical, disabled, or treasonous president. The real rub was not having a power of removal per se, but the actual mechanism for implementing it. In ancient Athens, James Wilson explained, impeachments were prosecuted against office holders who were thought to be dangerous. They were referred to the popular assembly, being a direct democracy, or to the Senate of five hundred. Remember this process, although not for impeachment, is how Socrates lost his life. A similar process existed for the ancient Germans. England took a different course. Originally, when the legislature was composed of but one chamber, that chamber could accuse and remove an official. This made them both judge and jury of crimes and misconduct, an affront to fundamental fairness. However, when the Parliament was split between the Commons and the House of Lords, the Commons was given the authority to charge an official with a removable offense, and the House of Lords would then conduct a trial to determine whether the officer was guilty. The accusation by the House of Commons became known as an impeachment. If the House of Lords found the official guilty he would then be removed from office. And this is the system that was in place at the time of the American Revolution. This seems kind of natural to us now, that it was placed in the Constitution, but there were plenty of other options for removing officers. For example, on June 2, 1787, John Dickinson, one of the earliest opponents to British oppression and one of the most learned delegates at the convention, proposed that the president be removed by the Congress upon a request of the majority of the state legislatures. He remarked that it was necessary to place the power of removal someplace, and specifically disliked impeachment as such a mode. Both James Madison and James Wilson countered that this gave too much power to the small states, would enable a minority to block the removal of a criminal president, and would leave the door open to intrigues in state legislatures, and would also spur the president to curry favor, perhaps corruptly, from state legislatures. The proposal gained no traction. In the end, the Founding Fathers determined that impeachment, which was something they were well acquainted with from English and colonial practice, was the appropriate constitutional mechanism to begin removal proceedings against federal officials. As we have observed before, the first major proposal for the constitutional structure of the federal government was introduced by Edmund Randolph on May 28, 1787. Among his 15 resolutions, often called the Virginia Plan, was Resolution number 9. Number 9. No. 9. Sorry, I'm lapsing back into our old ways of teasing Mike Gerard with Beatles references. In any event, Resolution Number 9 proposed that the judiciary decide the impeachment of any national officers. Resolution Number 9 specifically provided that lower courts would initially and then the Supreme Court would finally, quote, hear and determine, unquote, the, quote, impeachments of national officers, unquote. Impeachment was quickly addressed again by New Jersey Delegate William Patterson in his set of resolutions, commonly referred to as the New Jersey Plan, which was laid before the Constitutional Convention on June 15th. The New Jersey Plan proposed that the Supreme Court would try impeachment cases. The convention agreed that the removal power would be done through impeachment, not some other mechanism. The issue was, how would impeachment proceed? There came quick agreement that it should rest with the House of Representatives, The Convention's Committee of Detail report of August 6, provided that the President could be removed from office if he was impeached by the House of Representatives. At the North Carolina Constitutional Convention, which ratified the federal Constitution, Judge James Uridale, who eventually would be appointed to the United States Supreme Court by George Washington, reflected that this important and awesome power should rest with the House of Representatives and the Senate. The power of impeachment is given by this Constitution to bring great offenders
1: to punishment. It is calculated to bring them to punishment for crimes which it is not easy to describe, but which everyone must be convinced is a high crime and misdemeanour against the government. This power is lodged in those who represent the great body of people because the occasion for its exercise will arise from acts of great injury to the community, and the objects of it may be such as cannot be easily reached by an ordinary tribunal. The trial belongs to the Senate, lest an inferior
0: tribunal should be too much awed by so powerful an accuser. In Federalist Paper Number 65, Alexander Hamilton elaborated about the need for the representatives of the people to be the agency vested with the impeachment power. After all, Impeachment is of great importance to the entire nation. Plus, it is a vital check on the executive branch. As such, only the representatives of the people are properly vested with this awesome authority.
2: What is to be asked is the true spirit of the institution itself. It is not designed as a method of national inquest into the conduct of public men. If this be the design of it, who can so properly be the inquisitors for the nation, as the representatives of the nation themselves. It is not disputed that the power of originating the inquiry, or, in other words, of preferring the impeachment, ought to be lodged in the hands of one branch of the legislative body. Will not the reasons which indicate the propriety of this arrangement strongly plead for an admission of the other branch of that body to share in this inquiry? The model, from which the idea of this institution has been borrowed, Pointed out that course in the Convention. In Great Britain, it is the province of the House of Commons to prefer the impeachment, and the House of Lords to decide upon it. Several of the state constitutions have followed the example. As well the latter as the former seem to have regarded the practice of impeachments as a bridle in the hands of the legislative body upon the executive servants of the government. Is not this? the true light in which it ought to be regarded.
0: In short, impeachment was vital to deter or, if necessary, remove a federal official who was corrupt, tyrannical, disabled, or criminal. And only by vesting that power in the House of Representatives could a Republican form of government be maintained, and that the people be ensured that any national inquest be undertaken fairly. The case for an impeachment power in the House of Representatives seemed uncontroverted.
2: Hold on, Judge Warren. Not so fast, remarked the brilliant delegate, Gouverneur Morris, at the Constitutional Convention in July of 1787. We have a problem here. We have designed a government based on a separation of powers between the legislative, executive, and judicial branches. But if the president can be impeached by the House of Representatives, his authority will become subservient to the Congress to keep his job. He has to keep the Congress happy, but part of his job is to keep the Congress in check. So, the President should be exempt from impeachment, but it could apply to his Cabinet without much harm.
1: The Executive is also to be impeachable. This is a dangerous part of the plan. It will hold him in such dependence that he will be no check on the legislature. He will not be a firm guardian of the people and of the public interest, he will be the tool of a faction, of some leading demagogue in the legislature. Can no better establishment be devised? If he is to be the guardian of the people, let him be appointed by the people. If he is to be a check on the legislature, let him not be impeachable. As to the danger from an unimpeachable magistrate, he could not regard it as formidable. There must be a certain great officers of state, a minister of finance, of war, of foreign affairs, etc. These, he presumes, will exercise their functions in subordination to the executive, and will be amendable by impeachment to the public justice. Without these ministers, the executive can do nothing of consequence."
2: the convention respectfully listened to Morris's concerns and rejected them. And after toying with the idea of having the judiciary resolve those controversies, the idea of the House of Representatives being the impeaching body had taken firm root. The power and manner of impeachment in the Constitution is described by Justice Story as,
1: the right to present a written accusation against persons in high offices and trusted for the purpose of bringing them to trial and punishment for gross misconduct. The power and the mode of proceeding are borrowed from the practice of England. In that kingdom, the House of Commons, which answers to our House of Representatives, has the right to present articles of impeachment against any person. For the gross misdemeanor before the House of Lords, which is the court of the highest criminal jurisdiction in the realm. The Articles of Impeachment are a sort of indictment, and the House, in presenting them, acts as a grand jury, and also as a public prosecutor.
2: Although the Convention settled on having the House of Representatives being the sole body with impeachment power, that did not mean they thought it was foolproof. Morris's concerns about politics was a genuine concern. In fact, in Federalist Paper No. 65, Hamilton warned that political factions could abuse the power of impeachment. In some cases, the detriment to the state from the prolonged inaction of men whose firm and faithful execution of their duty might have exposed them to the persecution of an intemperate or designing majority in the House of Representatives— Though this latter supposition may seem harsh, and might not be likely often to be verified, yet it ought not to be forgotten that the demon of faction will at certain seasons extend his scepter over all numerous bodies of men. Hamilton elaborated that politics would almost certainly seep into any major impeachment controversy which might not result in a just and fair outcome. The result could simply be an outcome determined by raw power politics. A well-constituted court for the trial of impeachments is an object not more to be desired than difficult to be obtained in a government wholly elective. The subjects of its jurisdiction are those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men, or, in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust. They are of a nature which may with peculiar propriety be denominated political, as they relate chiefly to injuries done immediately to the society itself. The prosecution of them, for this reason, will seldom fail to agitate the passions of the whole community and to divide it into parties, more or less friendly or inimical to the accused. In many cases, it will connect itself with the pre-existing factions And will enlist all their animosities, partialities, influence, and interest on one side or on the other, and in such cases there will always be the greatest danger that the decision will be regulated more by the comparative strength of parties than by the real demonstrations of innocence or guilt. The key to good governance was to ensure that officers who assuredly engaged in impeachable conduct be impeached, but that the impeachment power not be abused as a political weapon against political enemies. James Wilson explained the dilemma.
1: The doctrine of impeachments is of high import in the constitutions of free states. On one hand, the most powerful magistrates should be amenable to the law. On the other hand, elevated characters should not be sacrificed merely on account of their elevation. No one Should be secure while he violates the Constitution and the laws. Everyone should be secure while he observes
0: them. Thank you, bombastic Brent Bassett. Whether the Constitution struck the right balance is a matter of grand debate and controversy, one for the ages. Some key takeaways from this episode each representative must represent no less than 30,000 people, and each state is entitled to at least one member in the House of Representatives. Vacancies in the House of Representatives are replaced by a special election called by the governor of the representative state. The House of Representatives has the sole power of impeachment, which charges a federal official with misconduct or disability, warranting the official's removal from office. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and author of America's Survival Guide. Our other two fabulous Patriot narrators are Mike Gerard-Skonechny, Skinechny, is our sound designer and Patriot Week's video content producer, and the multi-talented, bombastic Brent Bassett. This podcast is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit Patriot Week's website at PatriotWeek.org to learn more about America's first principles, key documents and speeches, founding fathers and other great patriots, and flags from our history. We have a bunch of great resources up there, including upcoming events. Our fellow patriots... Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.
1: Thank you, our fellow Patriots, for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and many other platforms. You can also find much more at patriotweek.org which includes videos, lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then-10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Instagram, or reach out directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History, by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.